G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. We're back. And we've got another season's worth of ancient Bible nerdiness or nerdfulness or nerdism, I don't know, to explore as we continue our, our deep dive into the first 11 chapters of Genesis, or as the guys who wear glasses call it, the primeval history. This is the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. But before we do that, we are going to launch into our study for this season, which is all about Genesis 4. So a big, hearty, masculine hug and welcome back to the man with all the answers, or at least most of them, Mr. TJ Stedman. Welcome back, Tim. Oh, thank you so much, Chris, and it is a joy and a pleasure to be back behind a microphone with you after more than a month off. By the way, I think I prefer the term nerdity. Totally nerd. It's good to be back, and I'm itching to get into this new content for our fourth season. I've been scratching for weeks. And to our listeners, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you're looking forward to this as much as I am, and I'm especially looking forward to helping you find answers to your giant questions. You know, Chris, you called me the man with the answers, but really I'm just the guy who goes looking for the answers. I put in a lot of hours to bring the content that others have published and draw out the truth of the Bible to shed light on the things that we modern people struggle to understand about the ancient world and the way the Bible's authors interacted with it. Mm, that's true, Tim, uh, but not all of us can do that. So uh, we're very thankful that you somehow managed to find the time to go searching for those answers. And uh, indeed, you do come out with some really obscure academic literature on these topics. That's why we need a podcast like this one. Otherwise, many of us would just never get answers to our giant questions. Well, we'd better get on with it then, I guess. Uh, we're getting ready to start our study of Genesis 4 proper now that we've covered some of the stuff that Genesis 4 is not telling us in those introductory episodes that we've had over the last couple of weeks. And again, I just want to acknowledge for those people who were hanging out for new content, I realise that we've just had a bit of a rehash of old material over those last two episodes, but I really wanted to get that out of the way once and for all so that we can now approach Genesis 4 with a clear head. So my apologies if you were looking for New material and we're disappointed, but all of that is about to change. All the parts of the primeval history, Genesis 4 is the one that seems the least congruent with the rest of this body of literature. We started with the creation story in Genesis 1 and its depiction of God bringing about cosmic order and modelling the proper use of time for his image bearers. And that was uh, Genesis 1, wasn't it? Yeah, then we have the Eden narrative, which introduced us to the man, and we got to see how he represents all of us. Or, put another way, we see ourselves represented in him. We watched as the disobedience of this preeminent man and his wife resulted in exile from the place where God held counsel, a beautiful paradise which would be forever remembered as a paradise lost. It was so interesting as you're getting uh, deep into that story and I think if anyone hasn't listened to all the episodes of the podcast yet they should definitely find the time to uh, to go back and uh, and listen. Yeah absolutely looking ahead from this point in the primeval history we have the genealogy of Adam's son Seth which we generally consider the line of righteous men since this line brings us to Noah and of course we're then introduced to the flood narrative which begins with the violence and bloodshed exemplified by the Nephilim and which ends in the devastation of the land in the wake of a cataclysmic disaster. After that, we witness the rebuilding of human civilization and their rise in an attempt at grasping the divine before we witness their fall at the hand of God. 
immediately following the turmoil of the events at the Tower of Babel, we're introduced to a man that God will use to begin to set everything right. Along comes Abraham, and the rest, as they say, is history. Oh boy, is that uh, our first of what is sure to be many puns? Yeah, well, you know, we, we quite often have people telling us that all the stuff that happens before Genesis 12 is not really history. The stuff that happens from Abraham onward is the real historical stuff. I think we can demonstrate pretty convincingly that just isn't the case. But it's kind of strange in the grand scheme of this epic that takes in these foundational events which shape the whole world. They have this little story about two brothers who apparently end up getting involved in a fight over something that was not even worth recording in the story. It's a bit weird that we have what appears to be a genealogy of a group of people that ended up dying out anyway. And it's very unusual that we should have preserved in God's holy book a particular story about some not very nice people doing not very nice things and then just disappearing from the pages of history. Let's be honest. You could remove Genesis 4 out of the Bible entirely and just act like it was never there and the story would still make sense. And that might be the weirdest part of all. The rest of the Hebrew Bible doesn't even acknowledge or refer back to this story at all. Not until we get to the New Testament that any of the writers of Scripture do anything with the story of Cain and Abel. There are some writings in the intertestamental literature, but that's not the same thing. Hmm. I've never thought about that, actually. As we work through our study of this mysterious chapter of Genesis, I'm going to show you why that little observation that we just made may hold the key to interpreting the true meaning of Genesis 4. But before we go any further, I'm going to take a couple of minutes here to read Genesis 4 in its entirety for the benefit of those who are not listening to this with the Bible in front of them, and to just give us a bit of grounding in this text before we go into detail over the course of this season of the podcast. So here we go. This is from the ESV, starting at verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. 
When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adar, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adar bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Jubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Jubal Cain was Naama. Lamech said to his wives, Adar and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that's the end of our reading. So we have two main sections in this chapter, the first dealing with Cain and Abel, and the second dealing with the legacy of Cain, culminating in the evil uh, Lamech. Yeah, we've talked at great length over the last two seasons about how the story of the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden is an archetypal story, which means that it's a story that's true of all of us as individuals and of us as a community, something which has been true of humankind all over the world in all ages of history. But it might surprise some of our listeners that even in Genesis 4, in the story of the two brothers, we're still participating in this archetypal narrative. Despite the insistence of our translations to render the man in Genesis 4 as the individual whose name is Adam, we would do well to remember that wherever the man is presented as such with the definite article preceding the noun, we're still dealing with this archetypal man, and therefore the story is about the audience of the story, and therefore ourselves by extension. It may be hard for us to see ourselves in Genesis 4 because the man and his wife, who is named, appear only as a pair of bookends to the chapter encompassing these two scenarios that play out over this passage of scripture. But we have to submit to the craftsmanship of the author who is intentionally drawing our focus away from our own selves so that we can see the work of our hands and the fruit of our loins. This is about what comes of the transgression that occurred in the garden. This is the vanity of attempting to meet your own needs when, as the Lord Jesus said, you can't make the hair on your head black or white, nor can you add a cubit to your stature. But the humans are going to try, aren't they? Ah, uh, yes, and that would be the Nephilim. One thing that we're going to notice as we go through Genesis 4 and as we look at these two stories presented here is a return to themes that we touched on in Genesis 2 and 3, though not in these words necessarily. In particular, worship, kingship, and the illusion of self-sufficiency. That's going to be something to look out for. Mm. And, and I guess we're also going to see the themes of brotherhood, familiar relationships, and the context of the ancient Near Eastern family. Yeah, Absolutely. Perhaps what might be the most exciting thing for this audience, and I suspect something that may draw a lot of questions from our listeners, the way that Genesis 4 provides something of a backdrop for the elaboration on Genesis 6, provided by the book of First Enoch. And if you've read my book, then you'll already have some familiarity with that, but we're going to go even deeper. 
So if you can't wait weeks and weeks for us to unpack these details word by word, then I would definitely recommend getting your hands on a copy of the book, Answers to Giant Questions, from Amazon in paperback or Kindle format. And I also would recommend getting it. And, and by the way, how is the book going, Tim? Ah, glad you asked. I might just mention while we're on the topic that the book is still doing quite well, receiving some great reviews. In fact, I got a nice review recently, which uh, I'll read it to you just quickly because I thought it was really nice. So this came from a guy whose name is Ben, and he submitted this review on Amazon. And uh, the title, it says, Excellent breakdown of the Nephilim, past, present, and future, and many other theology topics. So Ben says, This has quickly become one of my favorites on this topic. I read through the book one time a couple of months ago on my Kindle and reread my highlighted portions, which were many now, which pretty much made a second run through. The topic of the Giants and Nephilim is something I've been interested in and reading into for probably five years now, and I've been interested in Bible prophecy since I was a teenager. This book has amazing insights into both areas. I've read many books in this vein over the past several years, including a few personal favourites like Ryan Peterson and his book The Judgment of the Nephilim and The Final Nephilim. Laura Sanger, who wrote Roots of the Federal Reserve. Michael Heiser, his books Unseen Realm and Reversing Hermon. Also Douglas Hamp, Corrupting the Image series. And Tom Horn, who wrote Exo Vaticana. And this book is right up there in quality, in my opinion, and better in some respects, as it covers some things more clearly and gives insights to certain areas that the others don't. Love the breakdown of the original Hebrew words throughout. It really gives amazing insight into what was really happening and how much the modern translations lose. And truly, as the title says, as you read about the history and future of the Nephilim and see how everything is connected, it really helps to strengthen not only your knowledge and understanding of the Bible, but also strengthens your faith. The following are areas that I loved and that made this book really stand out to me as a favourite and why this book will be a great ongoing reference book. The concepts in the flood as to why it was a judgment of what really happened during the flood, the meaning behind the numbers. The chiastic structures and their significance. The early Old Testament judgments of Genesis 6, Genesis 11, the Exodus and Korah. The meanings behind the Azazel goat sacrifice, what really happened with Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. Leviathan, probably best explanation that I've read. Ezekiel 31 and 32, the Rephaim, probably the best explanation that I've read. The meaning behind scorpions, locusts, lions throughout the Bible. The future of the Nephilim and the reasoning behind it. The explanation of Revelation 9 judgments. Meanings inside of the genealogies. How the Nephilim are connected to God's covenants through history. And Christian life during the church age. Five stars. That is so good. Good on you, Ben, uh, for taking the time to uh, to write that, that review. It must uh, make you feel a warm and fuzzy inside, Tim. Yeah, no, it's, it's great to get something like that. So, yeah, just wanted to say thanks to Ben for that really great review. And uh, just to encourage you, all those reviews are really important because the more reviews the book gets, the more that Amazon's algorithms will use those reviews to put the book in front of more people, generate more exposure, which results in increased ability on my part to be able to share this material with more people. Anyway, getting back to Genesis 4, another thing that we're going to get into, which I'm particularly looking forward to, is the use of names, and there are a handful of interesting names in this chapter, which we're going to look at in some detail, because they're going to help us understand the story and get the point that the author is trying to make. How does that work exactly? Well, there's a reason why we want to dig into these names and look for meaning in the names, and it's because in ancient culture, names are important for conveying meaning and emphasising function in a text. 
we have to remember that ancient scribes had to be really economical with the use of words because writing was expensive and materials were hard to come by. So you can think of ancient scribes a little bit like professional golf players. The idea is to get the golf ball in the hole with the least amount of strokes or to get the idea in your head with the least strokes of the pen. And that's why for ancient scribes, names were really important because you can use a person's name to convey a lot of information about them with a single word. That's not the way we use names today because in our modern culture, when we record a story about somebody, we're going to use the name that was given by their parents, the name that appears on their official documentation, the name that people use when they talk to that person. And according to our modern standards of historicity, that's the only name that we would expect to find in reference to a person because we're interested in the accuracy of the facts on a scientific level because ancient scribes had no such concerns. For an ancient writer, the point being conveyed was far more important than the fine details. Nobody was going to accost a scribe and say, how dare you change that guy's name in the story? Well, you can't do that. The exact number of people was 68 and you wrote 70 because no one cares. If, if that's not the point being made, then it really doesn't matter. And that brings me to another feature of Genesis 4, which is the use of number. It doesn't get a lot of play in this chapter, but like I always say, the numbers matter because, again, there's a point being made and it probably doesn't have much to do with counting. We're going to see a lot of great textual features in play in this season of the podcast as we study Genesis 4, and it's going to keep it interesting while we work out the larger story being told and how it fits into the biblical meta-narrative. Uh, but that's all coming up when we continue the season next week when we will start looking at the mysterious story of Cain and Abel. For now, though, it's time for you, the listeners, to get answers to your giant questions. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. And we are kicking it off with an absolute doozy. And you asked, my husband and I have been reading about fallen angels and how they were destroyed in the flood. With the Queen's death, We've been reading about how she is a lizard person. How are they lizard people? Where did they come from? Were they not destroyed in the flood as well? Mm. Mm, all right. Well, I don't know if you've been following this podcast over the last couple of weeks, aren't you? But I'm about to say, listen to them again. I'm going to be pretty blunt. The Queen is not a lizard person. The royal family are not lizard people. Human beings are not lizard people. All of this is coming from some perceived need of some people in the internet fringe community to perpetuate what we've come to know as the serpent seed doctrine. The devil was a serpent. The serpent had sex with Eve. Eve gave birth to Cain. Cain is the bad guy. Cain must be a half-serpent creature. Cain and all bad people in power, therefore, must be part reptile, part human, and all bad. How do you know if someone's a lizard person? It's easy. They're old and they're powerful. And now that I've told you how to identify a lizard person, the Illuminati are going to come and get me and they'll take down my podcast and they'll persecute me. So I better go and buy some more guns because all of this is about fear of a tyrannical government. And since that's basically written into the American Constitution, it follows that anyone can just push this kind of rubbish and people will swallow it. Here's a wild conspiracy theory for you. Maybe the people you need to be afraid of are actually the people making you afraid and telling you that you need to arm yourself and not trust anyone. Now, I know that some people out there have written extensively about royal families and powerful political families in some of the biggest governments in the world. And again, for those who came in late, we've covered this before, but let me just lay it out for you. 
there are no secretly preserved royal bloodlines hiding some kind of Nephilim DNA or some reptilian shape-shifting species. And I can say that with full confidence because the simple fact of the matter is that human genetics does not work that way. God actually made our genome incredibly robust and self-correcting. The genome corrects itself because it takes double the amount of ancestors for every generation you go back, which means that somewhere along the line, Every person out there with some minor variance in their DNA has been interbred with every other kind of person out there with some minor variance in their DNA, and the whole lot works out to be practically identical. Rich and powerful families are often well known for the promiscuity of members of their family, so it's really a ridiculous proposition to argue that they're somehow keeping their bloodlines pure. And on top of that, it only takes about 10 generations to completely remove any traceable DNA from your ancestry, by the time you go that far back, you have less than 1% of your DNA in common with any ancestor alive at that time or earlier. And if you keep going further back, you soon find that once you reach about 3,000 years prior to the present day, actually related to so many ancestors that you're somehow descended from everybody alive at that time or earlier. So if anybody was a lizard person around the time of King David, then everybody is now, including you and me. Obviously, that isn't true, and I'm kind of joking, but the point to be taken from this is that even if such a thing were possible, it would only take 10 generations or so for that genome to be completely erased. So yeah, anyway, what I'm really saying here is that lizard people are totally not a thing. And you might point to art and relics that come from ancient times, depicting people with the head of a snake or something like that. For example, the figurines that were found from the Ubayid civilization. The simple fact of the matter is that these could be easily explained by noting the fact that artists often use imagery to convey things that they can't or don't want to express in words. Remember, they hadn't invented writing. Snakes and serpents and reptiles in general have been used by ancient people for thousands of years to depict abstract ideas like longevity, wisdom, rejuvenation, healing and other things like that. So when you see a depiction of some kind of humanoid figure with the head of a serpent or something like that, you need not assume that this was intended to be a lifelike representation of something that you would have seen with your own eyes had you been standing there at the time. And that's something that we have to keep in mind, particularly with Neolithic civilizations where they didn't have writing. They don't get to write these things down and explain them. The picture has to tell the story. That's actually a really good point. Yeah, well, you know, think about situations where we don't have pictures or statues or something, but we do have writing. You wouldn't sit down and read Genesis chapter 49 and assume that Jacob is describing his sons scientifically when he says that Judah is a lion's cub or Issachar is a donkey or that Dan is a serpent or that Nephtali is a doe. These depictions are supposed to illustrate something about the traits that these people have in terms of their character and their behaviour. We know that it's not meant to be taken literally, and we take that into account as we read and understand the text. So I'm just saying that if we can do that when we read ancient literature, why can't we do it when we look at non-written ancient art? So once again, lizard people or reptilians or whatever you want to call them are not real and have never been real. This is just what happens when intellectually dishonest people misinterpret ancient art and literature and use it to defend terrible theology that's usually racist, used to spread fear, aimed at dividing people, and based entirely on some desire to rebel against authority and still appear righteous and persecuted while doing it. We need to remember as well, many of the people that the conspiracy theorists would like to point to as being some sort of shape-shifting race of invaders subverting the human species actually faithful Christians who are just as much a part of the body of Christ as you and I. And since this question was originally about the Queen, 
we would do well to remember that she has publicly confessed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ on many occasions. Who are we to judge the authenticity of another person's faith? So, I thought that I'd already said enough about the Serpent Seed Doctrine, but apparently not, so sounds like these questions are going to keep coming. But I don't think I'll be taking any more of them on the show because there's more than enough material already there for anyone who's prepared to listen. And quite frankly, the reason that I did the last two episodes was because I'm already sick of talking about it. So, we're moving on. Next week's show is going to feature all new material, some really great in-depth stuff that will get you thinking, and absolutely no more of this Serpent Seed nonsense. That's it from me. We'll catch you next week with more answers to your giant questions. But actually, before we go, I want to say something else about the royal family. There's been a bit of buzz around the link between the royal family and that of the inspiration behind Dracula, who was Vlad the Impaler. And there is a genuine link between them, genealogically speaking. That is a significant contributing factor toward all of this conspiracy theory and that sort of thing circulating around this whole issue. I just want to remind people that genealogy functions as an essential part of many kinds of historically based storytelling. And that's what genealogies have always done. That's why we have them in the Bible. That's why people like looking up their family tree and finding out where they came from and all that sort of stuff. It makes great stories. But I think it's important that we never lose sight of the fact that genealogies are just that. They are a way of telling a story. The concept of using genealogies as stories is very simple. You look at the person that you want to talk about in the present day or the recent past, whatever the case may be, and then you search back in their history to find predecessors who exemplified certain traits or had some noteworthy thing happen in their life that connects them thematically to the story of the modern protagonist. This is going to be central to everything that we talk about on this podcast over the next two seasons, and again once we get into Genesis 10 and 11 later on. Now, this is incredibly oversimplified, but just for the sake of an example, consider the genealogy of Jesus Christ provided in Matthew's Gospel. Why does it start with the mention of Abraham and David? It's because the author wants to remind you that those are people with whom God made covenants that had significant impact on the faithful people of God. Now, Matthew wants to bring your attention to Jesus and talk about the new covenant. So using a genealogy to connect those ideas is a way of telling the story of the fulfillment of those covenant promises through the people mentioned in the genealogy, culminating in Jesus Christ, who is the focus of the story. And the point being made is that God's faithfulness is going to continue as evidenced by the story laid out in this genealogy, and God's work that began with Abraham is going to be completed. Coming back to the example of Vlad the Impaler in the genealogy of the British royal family, what we can see is an example of storytelling where people have highlighted the link that exists between these people so that they can suggest the legitimacy connecting certain behaviours allegedly exhibited by those people. Just remember that the ability to string people together in a genealogical story does not necessarily constitute a logical connection between the identity and behaviours of one person and those of another in the real world. And also keep in mind what I've said many times about genealogies, which is that you have so many ancestors in your distant past, you can basically choose who you want to be connected to in a genealogy in order to make statements about who you are as a person. Somebody else might choose a different ancestor of yours and paint you completely differently. The reality is that you do not get to choose who you are related to as a matter of ancestry. And the list of your ancestors is so diverse that you really cannot legitimately pinpoint any particular one and suggest that they are responsible for the way you turned out as a human being. 
the important thing about genealogy as storytelling is that it is to be understood in retrospect. You have to look backwards in time to find somebody who makes the right statement about the person in the present that you wish to talk about. It doesn't work the other way around. Nobody's engineering their bloodline into the future to try and make some future person turn out a certain way. That's not how genealogy works. But all that is to say that you really can't put too much stock in the idea of particular bloodlines or descent from a particular individual in order to get an accurate picture of the character of any modern person that you might be interested in. In other words, the Queen was not a vampire. So now that we've put that one to bed, I think that's enough. And it's getting pretty late around here, so I'm going to put myself to bed too. Good night, everyone. <laughs> Indeed. Well said, as always, Tim, and I'm looking forward to next week in getting deep into the story of Cain and Abel. Good night also from me, and thanks, everyone, for listening. We shall catch you next week. Bye-bye. See you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephen on Amazon. Paperback and Google Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com, giantanswers.com. Read the blog and have us on socials. Don't forget to subscribe to the Friends Club Show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Back in the city, they had an 80s retrospective in September, so I watched um, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Just watched that by myself. God. Yeah, it was good. Just talking to strangers. And... I went to the cinema with the boys uh, on Saturday and saw... Um... League of Super Pets. Oh, it is, yeah. Always, yeah. Was it humorous? Uh, a little. Yeah. When I was awake. There were some parts that were funny. <laughs> oh, I played Dungeons and Dragons on Friday for the first time in 25 years. Um, so um, I used to play at a high school as a dungeon master. Some people might be uh, understandably, you know, think it's of the devil and all that, you know, the satanic panic of the 80s. I remember all that. And now you were at DM before? Yeah, oh, years ago, like in high school, um, and a few years after that, yeah. Um, just played that, Dungeons Dragons, Warhammer, and Shadowrun. Those were the three main things me and my mates used to play, usually at my mum and dad's house. Um, well, I have to refer to you as the Dungeon Master now. Oh, please don't. It makes me sound more creepy and powerful than I really am. But that's... Oh, I was going to say, but that's not all coming up. Okay, I'll try that again.